I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, what we start off with is the Weekend Review. What movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event. A main topic of discussion or a main review then finish up with film faves our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic often marching backwards through time it's probably more like occasionally marching backwards through time but this episode is our 60s episode in the 60s we are for our main event taking a look at the Jean-Luc Godard film, Breathless, which is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year. I see, 60, 60. And also, film faves will be counting down our respective list of our favorite movies from the 60s. So I've been looking forward to this. It'll be interesting and fun. And I think we got an interesting discussion ahead of us in the main event. But first... Shanna, do we have any updates having to do with the pandemic and our lives or the world of movies? Yeah, I will now associate this time of our lives with the smell of the ironing board and the sound of the sewing machine because I've sewn almost 200 masks and that's been very a very interesting process. And, yeah. and to be clear, that's not 200 masks just for you and I. No. We're not crazy. We're never going to wash them. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's for other people. Yeah. Other people were interested. Some people um, had said, oh, I, I would love to have a mask, but I don't have a sewing machine. And I'm sure everybody appreciates the work you are doing into to creating that for them. I know I do. I thank you for that. Anything else that you want to update people on as far as this whole quarantine pandemic situation is going oh well it's a great time to catch up on stuff mm, yeah 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 yes, yes. how about you um i'm doing okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm hanging in there i i would very much like to see and hug our friends That's uh, what i'd really like yes there's a lot of people i haven't been able to have much contact with that i would love to uh, so that sucks, but I'm getting by watching movies, going out and working, the oh, yeah. usual, playing it, games. It has been nice, of course, playing board games, but it's also been nice being able to do something to help the house. So like scrubbing the front porch and, oh. you know, doing some spring cleaning. Yes, you are in full spring cleaning mode. That is for sure. And I appreciate you for that. Why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So shall we move on to the weekend review with your weekend review? We sure should. Okay. <laughs> so what movies or TV shows have you been catching up with since the last episode? So something really fun that I got to do during my sewing adventures is watch Gargoyle Season 1 on Disney+. Plus. Oh, then this is the show from 1994, I think, that lasted for a couple seasons, two, three seasons. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's three seasons. And you've never seen it before? No, I I was aware of it as a kid. Like, I watched a couple episodes, but it was always the same darn episode, you know? And um, I think the Gargoyle season one, first four episodes, I think they released that as a movie oh. that you could buy on VHS, and that, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that sort of thing was pretty common. And if they're a multi-part episodes they'd release it on vhs as one extended thing that happened a lot i think with x-men uh cartoons too oh gotcha yeah so essentially what it's a you know this thing has oh what do you call it serial it's a serial show yeah serialized uh storytelling yeah yeah so it's serialized so you have to that's what would be frustrated about it if the show wasn't revealed in order as a kid and often that happened with me they just popped in a random episode Mm. you know and i was like what the hell are you doing yeah repeats are tough for serialized programming if it's not in order yeah you know i felt like i was finally getting something done from my childhood, uh, getting a project completed, you know? And it was really fun, and I love the voice actors. There's Keith David. Uh, He's also in Community for one of the seasons, and I'm trying to think what else he's known for. Do you know? Well, you saw him in They Live. Oh, yeah. And he's been in just so many things, man, so many. Like, literally 100 or 200 things. Oh, wow. And then I think, is this the guy from Roger Rabbit? No, that's oh. Ed Asner. Who's you, Ed Asner? You know, you know him best as Carl from Up. Oh, well, so he's got a voice in there. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a really good voice actor, too. And then Sally Richardson. Let's speak about the characters. The characters are really awesome in this show. I mean, if they're the bad guy, they have levels of badness mm-hmm. and they try to be charming and do other things and then it, you know the good guys are the gargoyles they're just trying to live in this new world they come from an ancient time okay so i want to get to what you think about the show but could you take a step back and set up for those who aren't familiar what what is the show about how would you describe the show i would say you know you've got these medieval gargoyles that magically live They turn to stone during the day, but come alive during the night. And their goal, their purpose is to protect their castle, their home. So, and anyone in it, they try to have, you know, there's some conflict because some want to and some don't want to protect humans that live in their home, their castle, whoever they have a connection with. And... Time plays a factor in this show, mm-hmm. so they they you know go they switch back and forth between their medieval life and then their now present life. I guess in the nineties in New York City. Ah, okay. How yeah. is it that they got to nineties New York? Someone moved them there. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So, what did you think of the show? I love the show. I love it. And I watched the first episode of season two, and you can totally tell that it must have done really well because they got a bigger budget. You saw a difference, you know, in their uh, color palette and Mm -hmm. shading, and, you know, they obviously got a bigger budget. So I like the storyline. I like what the gargoyles are trying to deal with. I like their allies. I like their enemies. It's, It's really cool. I love the main character played by Keith David. I love his voice. It's perfect. He plays Goliath. And then Sally Richardson plays their strong ally. She's a a detective 
Oh, and okay. she's just such a kick-ass character. She doesn't take nonsense, mm. and she's really fair, and she's got this fantastic voice, this fantastic presence, and I really love the pairing up of the two of them. Nice. Right on. Yeah, I remember that show came out when I was about 14 years old, and it has a dramatic, literally a dramatic shift from things like DuckTales and Gummy Bears and you know everything else that came before in what was called the Disney Afternoon in the block of scheduling uh, here in the States. So I'm glad you discovered it. And where did you discover it? Oh, yeah. So you can watch it on Disney Plus, And I believe there's three seasons. And I think the first season has 12 episodes. I'm not sure about the others. Okay. Very cool. What else did you check out since the last episode? I also checked out It Takes Two with the Olsen twins. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> this is from your childhood, though, right? This is from my childhood. And I couldn't remember. You know, from your childhood, you'll remember certain scenes and you won't remember you know other parts so i was like oh well let's see what this is like let's see if i still like it blah 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 yeah. i hate this movie so much oh, oh my god <laughs> why is that it's it's just it's it's so disappointing disappointing it, it really is you had high expectations going into it takes two starring the olsen twins no let me tell you why okay <laughs> <laughs> okay this isn't the normal parent trap framework. Okay. Parent trap framework is twins separated at birth. Okay. This, they're just two identical strangers. And I'm like, what the fuck? Why did you hire the Olsen twins to play two identical strangers? Well, it because just, they're identical twins. They're, oh, my God. That's right. They're twins. Twins. Yeah. Twin twins. <laughs> twins. <laughs> Okay. Who better to play two oh, identical strangers? My God. I just, when when the end of the film came, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm really, or the three-quarter mark or what, I'm saving people. So this isn't a spoiler. Like when that three-quarter mark came or whatever part of the film and they were like, oh, your mom birthed you. Oh, well, we don't know who your mom is. And it's like, turns out that's true. It wasn't like the mom birthed both children ah. and one got separated or stolen and they just never knew about it. Mm. That would have been so much more interesting to me. Okay. But they didn't go there. Uh-huh. So. So not much in the way of character depth or intrigue uh, in It Takes Two by the Olsen Twins. It's, it's also shallow and... Shocking. And just awful. And not even funny. The only oh, really? fun part is a food fight. Um. Which ultimately is irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> to throw food around but still well that that that's a little i do not recommend this film yeah. i like if you were also curious i don't recommend you go back and relive your life okay like no you know you raise a good interesting point which is you know movies where you love that you loved as a kid that worked well as a kid to some degree that as you go back as an adult are just a train wreck or just kind of embarrassing to realize that you actually liked you know or just don't they don't hold up to the fond memories that you had of that and i've experienced that a time or two and yeah it sounds I was like this was your experience i wasn't upset about that i was just upset about the actual movie mm. so that was good yeah 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 and who is the who's the love interest it's kirstie alley and who oh we saw him in another movie just a minute ago was it steve gutenberg that's probably it. Oh, man. Black curly hair. Yeah, And I then think so. what did we watch him in recently? 
Uh, something we'll be talking about shortly, oh, okay. actually. Uh, yeah, okay. So anything else you want to say about It Takes Two? No, I just I don't recommend it. I'm saving all of you. All right. All okay. Right. What else did you see? I, wa- I finally got to watch El Camino. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to spoil anything in this one. <laughs> I don't have to save you. It was actually pretty decent. And no. I think it was pretty satisfying for people who were fans of the show, Breaking Bad. Yeah, so and what that's is El what, Camino? This is what happens after Breaking Bad ends. Gotcha. Like, right after. So this was... Our main character, what is his name? Is it Jesse that it follows? So we're we're checking out Jesse's journey after being imprisoned by his captors. You see his PTSD as he tries to push through the next chapter of his life. And, you know, he's got a lot of... You think that he's out of the woods and he's not. He's still trying to deal with other hurdles. And you really see his innocence. You know, I know that you think, oh, if you're a drug maker, drug dealer, you're probably not innocent in any way. But I guess it really just tries to humanize Jesse. Mm. And that's that's not a that's not a bad idea to explore. We also look at some of the stuff that happened during his capture time, because I don't think that we got a lot of info. We weren't shown a lot about it. Okay. do you feel like this is interesting because this is several years after the show, the series, the AMC show Breaking Bad ended. I feel like society's kind of moved on from the show, right? Do you feel like going back to this through this film was necessary? Do you feel like the film suffers in any way from taking so long after the show ended to come out? How is no? Because I th- I tell you why I think that Breaking Bad fans are hardcore fans. Mm. So I think everybody's just really happy to see them. Okay, and that's great. But you know, so if you're a fan, you're gonna watch it. Okay, you know, and I think it's good that you watch it. And if you are a fan that hasn't watched it, I think go ahead when you have time. There's no rush. We've been waiting this long already. Yeah. Um, Do you think that they're missing out if they don't? I think just a little bit. Okay. Just a little bit. Because I think it's interesting. It's an interesting look at Jesse. Okay. Okay. Whereas the show was really about uh, the teacher, his name. What is his name? Uh, Brian Cranston. I can't remember the character's name. The show was really about Brian Cranston, if you think. It was about him fighting a system, him fighting to survive through his cancer you know that's revealed in well the first his episode. his slow slow disintegration of as uh, a character of any moral value <laughs> yeah so it's really about him and so this movie really focuses on jesse and it's you know who he is does he own an el, el camino i don't know is that why it's called el camino i don't know okay. <laughs> All right. i think they do mention it in the film somewhere but i don't remember gotcha all right so that's uh, Netflix's film El Camino, a Breaking Bad story. Was there anything else? It's your turn to tell us about your week in review. I don't have anything. I have had what? no opportunities to watch anything on my own. <laughs> Everybody's been in the house. Uh, if if not, I'm the one that's out of the house. So yeah, it's oh, it's oh how the tables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 we have a week in review together of a couple things that we have caught up on. First of all, uh, a couple episodes back, we talked about community, how 
had shown you Community, and I think at that point we had watched the first half of the series. Uh, there were six seasons total. Six seasons is in the movie. Uh, we watched the other half since that episode, and so we should talk a little bit about that. So, Shanna, there's, interestingly enough, in the background of this, there was a little bit of turmoil during the course of season three of Community that led to many of the major writers and creators to leave the show and the Russo brothers who were regular directors and writers of the show they left and started and did work for the MCU with Captain America Winter Soldier Dan Harmon very publicly had some issues which you can google and he left and many others so they had a new creative team in season four that creative team was kicked out in after season four and the original creative team came back in season five. Then that series was canceled after season five by NBC. And then Yahoo, Yahoo, guys, Yahoo screened. Anybody remember this? Yahoo tried to create a, a subscription streaming service and community was going to be their flagship thing. And it existed for a year one season before everybody kind of went in their own separate ways. So Shanna, first of all, do you feel like any of the turbulence, that creative turbulence was felt during the course of the second half of the season, uh, the series? And how do you feel like the second half of the series measures up to the first half of the series? Yeah. I definitely feel like it influenced things. I mean, the first three seasons of this show are really solid. And the last three seasons are... There's there's an episode sprinkled here and there that are good. Mm. You know, and it's it's confusing. We we keep losing characters. That's no secret. Right. Um, and it's just... I, I got really upset when one of the characters didn't come back and then another character that was introduced that didn't come back in the next season. In season I was five. Just, I was just, I was really upset. Huge turnover, more or less, in the, in the cast. Yeah, yeah. So it affects it. I'm glad we owned th- the first three seasons. Correct. And I'm like, okay, that's good. We okay. probably don't know... I mean, I feel like we probably don't need the rest, but I know you might feel differently. Well, I, prior to watching this, because I'd only seen the first three seasons, prior to watching this, I really wanted to get the box set. And maybe there's some really nice goodies in the box set that make it worthwhile still. Anybody can write in and let me know if you're a community fan and have that. But I, I do second guess and kind of wonder, well, do we really need it? Because, yes, the, the second half of the series is greatly affected creatively and otherwise by the turbulence that was happening behind the scenes you have story arcs that were built up through season three that suddenly were abandoned characters kind of slowly start dwindling off one is killed off eventually and one just leaves in the middle of the season and and then you have these new characters come in and some work well like yeah i think jonathan banks starts to hit his groove and then he's all of a sudden gone in the sixth season and with no no explanation no explanation yeah there's some stuff that happens with chain um who's who's uh the actor's name is ridiculously skipping my mind right now 
there's some absurd stuff that happens with him that I don't think works that well in in the second half of the series, especially in season four. And then and then even stuff that they're building up in season four gets abandoned in season five. Uh, it's just so inconsistent, the last half of the, the series. I agree with you. There's still some good stuff in there. You know, there it does have moments where... It recaptures some of what it did well in the first three seasons. I mean, yeah. you have a you have a puppet episode. You have a GI Joe episode, which is rad. That was, just, that was great. That, that was, was so season cool. five. Uh, yeah, season five or six. Yeah. Okay. You have so many other things that pop up here and there that kind of reclaim some of the glory days of the show, but it's very inconsistent and and certain characters that come in never gel quite well you know never feel that natural as part of the group and they definitely to me can't compare to the original core group yeah yeah i i was sad when the first character left and then when the second character left i was bad yeah well there's three characters that left from the core group let's not forget the third one there's Pierce, Troy, and then Sher- Sherry. Oh, okay. I I was sad about Surely. Troy leaving, and then Yvette, when Yvette Brown's character left, I was just mad. So Troy and Shirley. Yeah. Yeah, and then other ones were just like, hey, wait a minute, what happened to that character? Kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And then like with season six, it felt to me like you could feel a change in budget even because there's like three or four episodes where a main centerpiece of the episode is a wall with and and some chairs a room with a wall and chairs and a podium yeah you know, and we don't go back to the cafeteria right right yeah. right it really which was an awesome space and uh, and there's other spaces in the the college that you don't see so with that said it sounds like we're kind of eh, on the second half of the show if you're a fan probably worth checking it out and watching it because there are some solid episodes but it's just not as good. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think if you're a fan of the show, you should finish it. Yeah. Because I think that that's that's a good thing to do. It's not completely and utterly unbearable. It's no. Just, it's just there's a decline that you see. Right, absolutely. So uh, Rotten Tomatoes has ranked the seasons based on critical acclaim. Should we go through that ranking and then kind of check it with ours or do ours first? Do ours first. Okay. okay. Why don't so you go first? Here's mine. Number two is my favorite. Then number one, three, five, four, six. So two, one, three, five, four, six. Yeah, and I think that that's accurate. I think it's it's so interesting. I have very minor variations. Mine is from fav- best to worst. Three, two, one, which was actually kind of hard to order. But I think like three and two are neck and neck. Three, two, one, and then five. Oh, yours makes more sense. Yeah, really? I you agree. Think so? I agree with you. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Way to stick to your guns, lovey. Well, I just looked at. I made a little list of my favorite episodes, and I just noticed that there's like four from season three. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and season three is where you get introduced to the idea of Troy being good at eight. Uh, HVACs and all that sort of stuff. They start heading in that direction. Anyway, three, two, one, then five, and then this is where it got tough. I said six, and then four as the worst. Okay. The 
consensus based on rotten, or according to Rotten Tomatoes is that the best season is two, so they agree with you, and then three, and then one, and then Oh no, I'm totally wrong. I'm sorry. Uh. Sorry, I screwed this up already. Two, five, three, one, six, and then four. So they kind of, it seems like we're on the same wavelength that four and six are the worst yeah. seasons. Yeah. And it's just a matter of where you put five into there with the creative team having come back. Yeah, that's interesting that that five is ranked ahead of season three and one. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think my favorite episodes have got to be from season three. It's the Law and Order episode. The Pillows and Blanket Fort episode. There's the Time Loop Origin episode. And then season two has the Critical Film Studies episode. Which one's Where that? you've got uh, My Dinner with Andre. Oh, that's a season two? The, yeah. And oh, then, okay. You know, season two's got the Paintball two-parter. And then it's also got the Dungeon and Dragons. Oh, that's in season two? Yeah. Episode. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I honestly, I was looking back on IMDb at all the episodes, trying to figure out my ranking of the series, and I was struck by how much I couldn't remember most of season one, and I don't know if it's because of how far, you know, it was the first one, how far long ago we watched it, mm-hmm. but I've, I found it easier to remember episodes from season two and three. Yeah, because like, I oh my god, that we, was awesome, and oh my god, that was awesome. I think we started, recently, we started from the Paintball two-parter, and then... What are some of the things like, so you love the Law and Order episode. Like for me, it's like the video game episode. Yes, I love that one too. The Christmas special episode. I forget that one. The the, the Claymation Christmas one? Yeah. Oh my God, I love that one. That's brilliant. And, and uh, gosh, uh, the paintball episodes are classic. Just awesome. Or anytime, anytime something overtakes the school. Like yeah. there's that app episode. Uh, it's a little yeah, crazy. Yeah, that one yeah. was all right. And I, then there's the one that's like uh, filmed much like who's that killer in San Francisco? Well, there is a serial killer episode, well, uh, a serial it's a killer serial. movie, but it's it's about someone who puts like change in people's butt cracks. Yeah, but what is what is that killer? Oh, Zodiac. Thank you. It's shot like the Zodiac. Oh, uh, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, anyway, so there's some, some gold in the show. If you haven't ever seen this and you love really irreverent, hilarious, clever comedies, check it out on Netflix. Let us know what you think. And, and if, if you are a fan. If you're looking for like a real-life parody show, you know, you got the Simpsons parodying things, yeah. Family Guy parodying things, well, this is like real-life parody. So sort of, it's really yeah. Cool. Yeah. If you're a fan, email us. Let us know what you think, too, and what your favorite episodes are of the series and what your breakdown and assessment of the series as a whole, the first half versus the second half goes. Um, And that about does it for the Week in Review. Now it's time for the main event and our look back at the 60th anniversary of Breathless. The Pretty Girl. The bad boy. Le revolver. The nice guy. The naughty girl. The wise guy. 
Screenplay by François Truffaut. Ferme noir. La petite américaine. The thief. The hanky panky. La police. Technical advisor, Claude Chabrol. The bikini. Jean-Pierre Melville. The shades. Humphrey Bogart. Renoir. Le derrière. Action. Adventure. The chase. Et film by Jean-Luc Godard. Le chapeau. The egotist. Le smoking. Le Champs-Élysées. New York Herald Tribune. Tenderness. Starring Jean Cyber and Jean-Paul Belmondo. Betrayal. Violence. Murder. They live by night. Rififi. Scarface. Gone crazy. The film that shook the world. Breathless. And that's a trailer from Jean-Luc Godard's debut film, Breathless, which he also wrote the screenplay to, story credited to Francois Truffaut and Claude Chabrol. Breathless stars Jean-Paul Belmondo and Gene Seberg. Jean-Paul Belmondo plays a guy who's kind of like this reckless criminal guy. He steals a car and kills a, a motorcycle cop. And he's trying to just make, a way, make his way out of the country. He, and he hides out unbeknownst to her with his ex-girlfriend, uh, played by Gene Seberg. And... It's kind of it's it's pretty much about that. There's not a whole lot of plot to this film, and I don't want to give away the rest of the film. But this is kind of hailed as one of the hallmark films of the French New Wave, which started a year or two before with Francois Truffaut's The Four Hundred Blows from 1958 and a couple other movies, one or two other movies. Uh, this film is basically when Godard was conceiving the film. I think it was Godard when he was conceiving the film. He kind of thought about how like there's this a boy who thinks of death all the time and a girl who doesn't, and that's kind of what the story is about. And it ended up being this story that had this movie that had a lot more significance to it. It had a lot of references to other films that are a little bit more obscure to us now, 60 years later. And also it kind of made a star of Gene Seberg, who is an American starring in this French film with this iconic pixie girl look to her with the short, short haircut and a t-shirt and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot. I feel like there's a lot to mine about this movie, but should we should we adhere first to our typical format of good and bad and and uh, spoilers and final thoughts, Shanna? How do you think we should go about the the discussion of this film? Well, let's.
let's just go for normal. Let's just do our normal routine, you know? Okay. I have to say, I know that we focus on what we liked about the film. Yes, because sometimes and, that can be then, difficult. And then we talk about what we didn't like about the film. But it is so Correct. hard for me. It's Uh-oh. so difficult for me to think about, what did I like about the film? Interesting. And I had a very hard time with this film. Mm. It was very difficult for me to get through. It was very difficult for me to tolerate. I didn't want to tolerate the nonsense that was in front of me. Nonsense. When you say nonsense, uh, what specifically are you referring to? The main character. Our main character, the man... I hate that person so much. And I don't often feel that way about characters in films. Usually I'm really like, oh, well, you know, I'll try to see the whole story. No, I'm not interested. This doesn't have a whole story. This is like, he's just a fucking asshole. And I don't have any interest in in seeing this movie ever again. What I liked about it, I guess I liked, I guess I liked Gene Seberg. I liked her. She was very charming. She was gorgeous. She is kind of the Twiggy before Twiggy, you know? <laughs> and I really liked her. I liked who her character was mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. I hated that she tolerated Mikkel so much. I just <laughs> wanted to smash him with a hammer, you know? It's, so I had very violent thoughts about this film. Mm. I liked that it was in black and white. But ultimately, I hate this film. I really hate this film so much. Okay, so let's let's try to start with positive from a cinematography perspective, one that you like to focus on <laughs> you're a lot. Trying to, you're trying to get me to talk about things I like. No, I was really disappointed in the cinematography in this film. Mm. There was one or two shots that were nice, Nothing amazing, nothing that pushed boundaries, nothing that was new. It was just, it was just boring shit. It was like a first year film. And I'm sure first year students were influenced by this film. <laughs> Lucky <God>. me. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well. Back to you. <laughs> I think the best way to take what you're saying is as a modern day viewer, looking back on this film from 60 years ago and perhaps the average viewer and how well it holds up to the to the contemporary viewer i think you have a you specifically have a talent for seeing it in its time and i do not (laughs) right right and i don't think most so um, i'm glad you're here too to talk about it i don't think the typical person who's going to go see movies like Jumanji or Cats or whatever else, (laughs) you know, would see it much differently than you, right? Like, if you're going to see Breathless... I'm sorry, did you just just lump me in a particular category? Oh, we're going to fight now! No, 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 no. no. (laughs) I'm trying to tactfully figure out how best to take you know, I, this what is how it your response is. This is how I am. And and I, don't, I have my morals. Sure. I have what I like to see. Yeah. What I'm okay seeing. Yeah. And what I will not touch. And this movie has stuff that I don't want to touch. Well, I mean, this isn't like American History X or anything where it's just completely unsavory. It's just, I think. I it's, mean, it's a little unsavory. 
Okay, otherwise I wouldn't feel so strongly about it. If I may, I think if the the, the average moviegoer were somehow to catch Wind of Breathless as a movie to check out, and they went into it expecting a conventional narrative a and, and something that's least bit quote-unquote exciting i think that and with likable characters quote-unquote i think that like what you're expressing would be expected and i i think maybe well you're no stranger to more challenging cinema i think maybe this one was a bridge too far for you in 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 some ways i think you know you have this website called does the dog die and that's (laughs) a great website Uh uh-huh so I need, is the guy a chauvinist, sexist, self-centered prick face? <laughs> and then I might be good because I'll be like, okay, so this is what I'm getting into. I'll try and shift my head and, 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 and see where the value is in the film. But at the same time, the moral, the side of myself that has the morals and decides what she's going to partake and not take in is like, well, why should I give a time of day? So why don't you, you know, I've, I've splurted a lot of bad stuff about this and yes. my feelings. Why don't you tell me what you liked about this film, what you think it contributes to the film industry? Well, for me, let me, let me take a step back even further, if I may. I've seen this film before, a long time ago, barely remember it. In fact, there is a scene... There's an extended sequence. It's like a third of the film that takes place in Patricia, in Patricia's apartment. That's mostly dialogue, right? And that's mostly all I remember of the movie was was that scene. So I don't I didn't remember really loving the film the first time I saw it. So this time watching it, it was a more of an intellectual exercise for me. How do I see it now that I'm approaching my 40s? How does it look to me now? What is significant about the movie? What stands out to me about why this film would be considered one of the greatest films ever made as it has been? I believe it ranked on the Sight and Sound poll that's done every 10 years somewhere in the top like 25 movies if i'm not mistaken yeah it's number 22 in sight and sound uh and 15 in 20 2002 and then in 2012 it was number 13 so it's kind of climbed in its estimation as it's gotten older and older so for me it was an intellectual exercise of okay what is it about this film that has such validity to it such merit such influence on other filmmakers, right? Which you, you're, you're kind of rolling your eyes about that. But it's interesting because, like, there's other movies that were, as we go back in time, you don't roll your eyes so much in terms of its significant, a, a particular movie's significance and influence and what is great about uh, a film outside of what happens in the plot or what, uh, whether or not a character is likable or what they say or what they don't say. So for me, it's an intellectual exercise of what, what is it about this film? It's not a movie I love, personally. It's never going to make a favorites list of, of mine. It's not a film that I feel compelled to purchase a Criterion edition of and really like savor. 
But from a film appreciation standpoint, from a cinephile standpoint, I think that there's some interesting stuff. Yes, I suppose this could be a film you check out uh, if you need inspiration and guidance on how to make a prick face character. Yes, I, I think that's very good. I think that's somewhat unfair. I think uh, it's just it's just how I feel. It, it it obviously gets under my skin, but there we go. It works. It got under the skin. There we go. Here's the one thing that we can agree on: uh, Gene Seberg. Yeah, she is kind of magnetic on screen, and I really wish that she had become much more of a star. And apparently, like some personal things kind of got in the way of that you know whether or not she was associated with the black panthers and and her you know how she was investigated by the fbi and stuff i think some of that stuff got in the way of making her a bigger star than she was well now now i'm even more mad right like i'm like even more mad yeah i mean i think she had the the capability of being one of the biggest stars of the 60s and really like she's best remembered as the woman in Breathless. That's her legacy, right? She did other work. She did, apparently, according to IMDb, 35 other credits, you know, and most of those were some film roles in things like Airport and Paint Your Wagon, you know, but nothing that, nothing on the level of Breathless, right? And certainly nothing stateside that that's on that level. But I do think that she is engaging. I think that she had a really fascinating presence on screen. There's something about her that is hard to look away from. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'm not at all surprised that she kind of inspired a whole look and had a, became a little bit of a sensation herself. Mm. So is there anything more you wanted to add about Jean Seberg and what you liked about her in response to all that? I, I think you put it really beautifully. I may be being very rude by saying she's the Twiggy before Twiggy. You know, Twiggy was probably really influenced by her. So I'm glad that you talked about that. I, I don't think I have anything truly constructive to say about this film. I think well, I think I agree with your assessment of her. Let's also talk about like what she represents, right? I don't think that, from what I understand, the legacy of the movie isn't so much what happens in the story or, or things like that. I think it's, it's more of technical stuff and we can talk about that in a second, but in terms of her and what she represents, like if you watch her and yes, there is this kind of boorish uh, jerk of a guy who's not in any way charismatic that she's responding to, that she had a relationship with at, at some point and, and kind of still associates it herself with. But you watch how she responds to things he says. He'll say something negative. She'll respond with a positive, right? Or she'll, she will ignore that negative and, say so, and, and bring up some other subject, right? Mm. She kind of like is a foil to him. Uh, this positivity, this kind of optimist, optimistic foil to, to him, right? I think so, yeah. And so I think that that's what she kind of represents in that way is kind of interesting. And also once she learns that what he's done and that he's kind of used her, you know, the whole time she's trying to figure out, do I love this guy? And clearly, like, they're opposites, right? Personality-wise. Yeah, she has a really good intention behind her actions. Right. And once she learns that she's being used by him and what he's done before 
he ran into her, she turns him in, right? It takes her a while. She actually saves him at first. In the end, she turns him in. Right. Apologies if that's a spoiler for anybody, but in the third act, that's 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 what happens. But the, I bring that up, not to be a spoiler sport, but to bring up how like maybe that kind of lends more to what she represents too, as a as a as a person. You know, mm-hmm. I don't th- I don't know that this movie is really trying to make any big statements about the human condition or anything like that maybe it is and if you if you think so i'd be interested in that kind of feedback that kind of dialogue feel free to email it but because jeff's done talking to me about it (laughs) no 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 otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation right but i think you're more done than i am but i do think that she is interesting in what she represents and how she plays against michelle is really interesting to watch and if you can't stand michelle watch her because I think I think that's that's fascinating. I think she's fascinating. Yeah. So most of the legacy of the film, from what I can understand, comes from the technical aspect of the film, and which you don't like at all, which I find interesting. The cutting, the, the editing. Cutting. The editing's a big yeah. part of that, right? Basically, what this movie does is it plays with jump cuts a lot. It has some very jumpy editing, interesting cuts. Sometimes some interesting shots where, like, oh, God, what is it? She'll be looking through a tube or something like that. And, and, and I remember in particular there's a transition where it cuts to kind of a tube shot of them kissing. Yeah, that you know? was a cute shot. Yeah, like there's some interesting stuff like that. But mostly it's kind of jagged in its editing, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, apparently that was unintentional that was not like part of the initial creative process but that is something that kind of happened during the course of the editing process and it ended up being like one of the most notable things about the film apparently and and helped add to its legacy and it's and it's its reception and you're not a fan of that at all and i kind of understand why a modern day viewer might find that jarring and unpleasant and make it maybe feel too roughshod and unprofessional. And to be clear, most of this movie was shot like guerrilla style too, right? It was a very low budget film. Yeah. And the editing kind of adds to that that feeling of it, which is probably where the the college student remark kind of is inspired by mm-hmm. uh, that you mentioned. And so it's it's very interesting, but you know. Godard was later quoted as saying that, you know, this this film showed there used to be just one way of doing things and we kind of uh, barged in and blew it all apart and doesn't record, he doesn't regret making Breathless because of that. If, you know, he kind of blew apart what the form could look like. And I wouldn't be surprised if the movie as a result was influential on things like Richard Linklater's before trilogy. And mm. if you look at the apartment scene and, and things like that, any, any yeah. movie that's uh, very focused on dynamics between men and women, any movie that you know has some sort of criminal running away from the police and maybe having a, a female love interest, I think probably have some influence in 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 Breathless based on its its basic plot structure. But let me t- throw to you, Shanna. There was this interesting thing I found about the technical side again of the film and how it was shot. Apparently, 
Godard tasked the cinematographer Raoul Cotard to shoot the entire film on a handheld camera with next to no lighting. And in order to shoot under low light levels, Cotard had to use an Ilford HP5 film, which was not available as motion picture film stock at the time. He therefore took 18 meter lengths of HP5 film sold for 35 millimeter still cameras and spliced them together to 120 meter rolls. And during the development, he pushed the negative one stop from 400 ASA to 800 ASA. And the size of the sprocket holes in the photographic film was different from the sprocket holes for motion picture film. And the Camflex camera was the only camera that worked for the film used. Taken into consideration, this thing was shot in the fall of... 1959 in a matter of 23 days and then was released later in like that march or something february or march taking account that that window of time tell us a little bit about your thoughts on on all that work and what what all that technicality means to you it means a lot of work you know there's a reason i do digital photography (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and that's a big reason. I mean, he he can definitely be commended for his resourcefulness. And uh, when you started explaining to me the first time about the ratios and the splicing and uh, the cutting and, and stuff like that, I was like, holy shit. You know, this reminds me of if, you know, you do something for the first time, you have a great idea for the medium, uh, for the story, but you have to work with the medium that you have to work with. And you might not know everything about that medium, and it's it, but you try to make the most of it. And he definitely earns the trophy for making things work with what he has. Yeah, so I think that's that's interesting, and and so clearly, like the the amount of time all of this was done is is pretty impressive, with the least amount of resources that they they had. I I'd say that the the movie is on a technical level when you're really kind of get into it it's fairly impressive and very interesting and i'm sure like it's a movie that if you're someone who's interested in filmmaking i think would probably find some really fascinating aspects to this i do think that story-wise i wish there was a little bit more meat on that bone but it's clearly not a, a crowd pleaser of the movie right yeah yeah so I'm afraid to ask, but what would you give this film <laughs> out of 10? Oh, man, honey. Like, I'd give it a two. Oh, wow. Yeah, the only Even with Gene Sieber. Maybe a three. Even with the technical prowess. Uh, you know, no, it's going to be a three. It's not going to go any higher. All right. How about you? Do you give it, what, like an eight? I'm more charitable to this film. <laughs> Wait, are you going to give it a nine? Then you are, is what I was going to say. Okay. okay. I would give it, I give it a seven out of 10. That's, that's fair for, you know, your feelings on it kind of match up with that. Yeah, that's a good, good job. I'm curious though, any cinephiles out there that have their own thoughts on Breathless and, and what it means to them, what, what your thoughts are on the story of it, on the technical side of it. Why do you think it's such a significant film or should be a relevant film, if at all, 60 years later? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. But I think it's fair to say that uh, Breathless is not going to make your favorites list (laughs) this time around, Shanna. No, no. No, no. 
But it is time for film faves. Let's see what did make my favorites. <laughs> it is our segment where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this case, we are looking at the decade of the 60s. Now, the idea behind film faves is to not only give you a sense of our taste in movies, but also to hopefully expose you to films maybe you haven't heard of or caught up with before. To that end, we also try to help you out by letting you know what's when they are on certain subscription services. We focus on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, HBO Now, and Disney+. Plus. Uh, so, as we go along, if a film is available on one of those services, we'll let you know. Most of these movies are probably available to rent, though, at the very least on Amazon so the 60s. Previously, we look, took a look at the 70s, which was pretty much the decade of New Hollywood. The 60s is a little bit more of a divided decade in the sense that you have the end of the golden age of Hollywood, which is much more of a studio system and then you have the advent of or the rise of the new hollywood era where it's like you have these new auteur directors that are rising and they're the creative forces behind the films and and they're speaking to so many things about the culture and the generations and the youth and all that sort of stuff and so you have what what basically happened in the 70s where there was so much interesting and fascinating filmmaking going on you had that kind of coming up and and originating in in the 60s and so the films became a lot less standard a lot more interesting you also have a mix of some movies are in black and white and some movies are in color breathless it seemed like was a perfect opportunity for us to talk about because not only was it um, having a 60, 60th anniversary and there's some great synergy there and how it sounds but also like it's 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 this film that has this mix of english and and foreign to it and that's another element of the 60s where you did have more foreign films hitting the market right as as is Italian neorealist films came about the French new wave became more stronger. And then you also had like the spaghetti Westerns and so many other things were, were kind of coming out uh, and becoming more widely digested in, in the sixties, more Japanese film of Kiriko Asawa and all sorts of things. Right. So it was an interesting decade of almost dualities and and kind of conflicting things happening during that time uh, in terms of filmmaking and so i think it's a really interesting decade and it's going to be really interesting going back to the 50s after after this and kind of comparing how how that feels that decade feels in terms of film but yeah, Shanna, do you have any thoughts that that really struck you as you were kind of going through the decade of the 60s? Anything that you noticed about movies in general at that time that you want to speak to? I think you hit the nail on the head. This was a very difficult decade for me. I either had a lot of fun or was very intrigued or was really mad about what I was watching. You know, I was really mad about... Breathless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Breathless. But I was also really mad about the motorbike guys. 
Easy Rider. I was really mad about that one. Mm-hmm. And I was I was mad about Midnight Cowboy. And not so much, you know, the last two I mentioned. I wasn't mad at the actual film or the characters. I was mad at the situations they were in. Mm. And so I had very strong feelings for 60s films. Mm. So I think it's really great. I think you're right. The whole duality thing. You've got some really feel good. You've got some really I want to kill someone. <laughs> kind of stuff <laughs> so it it's great it, it it hits the whole scale the 60s very cool were there any years that you noticed that really stood out to you or as as favorites overall that we'll see reflected in your list it looks like 63 62 67 have two films each but nothing over that so nothing that was overly my favorite year We'll just have to see how this unfolds. For me, it's really interestingly enough, 68 and 69, I think were kind of the most interesting years of the decade that you'll you'll hear about, I think, in some of of my picks. Of the decade or of your list? Oh, then you'll hear reflected (laughs) in a list, you know, as a result. But yeah. All right, so why don't you get us started and tell us what your 12th favorite 60s movie is. My number 12 is In the Heat of the Night from 1967. It's on Prime, so whoop whoop. And it's got Sidney Poitier, so you definitely need to go watch it because (laughs) that man is amazing. He is my favorite of the 60s and Spencer Tracy as well. Oh, interesting. So there's a fun little thing. Anyway, Spencer Tracy isn't in this one. So this is about a African-American detective who's going to go and solve a murder in a racially charged area down south. Uh, because why not go upset the apple cart further? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a comedy. I'm just, you know, right, trying yeah. to see the light side in, of it. This is during the civil rights This is like era. really bad. Everything's yeah. tense. You're on the edge of your seat with this film. And it's not like oh my God, is the zombie going to eat his face edge of the seat? It's like, (laughs) this is real. This is happening still in areas around the world, around the country. It's it's real life terror edge on the seat, kind of. Mm. You don't know if he's going to come out of this okay. Yeah. So that is In the Heat of the Night from 67, available on Prime. Very cool. Yeah, I love that movie too. That's a great one. My will say, actually, I probably should speak to the decade myself. I didn't answer my own questions, I suppose. And uh, aside from my setup, which maybe kind of gives, portrays the fact that I actually think that this is a great decade, a fascinating one. I think that there's a lot of fascinating films, many of which didn't make my list. But I think like this is where you get more interesting storytelling in this decade Mm. and yes the closer you get to the end of the decade the more and more interesting it gets and more favorites pop up but my first film on my list my number 12 favorite is actually from 1961 it is a film that stars marilyn monroe and clark gable and it's not one of the movies hey that's a good one that you hear about when people talk about marilyn monroe it is the last film that she that was released before she died. Clark Gable died before the film was released. So it has this double impact uh, of, of weightiness. It's called The Misfits. And it's by John Huston. 
it's this interesting film that doesn't have a whole lot in terms of plot. Basically, Marilyn Monroe is and and um, and a friend of hers, played by an awesome character actress whose name escapes oh, me. Oh my right word, now. I love that woman. They She's basically awesome. befriend the these guys, played by Clark Gable and oh shoot, someone else whose name is escaping me. Darn it, I, I should know these by now. But anyway, befriends these guys who basically rope horses and sell them. And they're basically... Wild horses. Wild horses, yeah. In, what is it, Nevada? No, yes, New it's Mexico. Nevada. New Mexico. Uh, I think it's New Mexico. They're living in Nevada, though. Okay. And it's basically he's this older cowboy. And it's this interesting thing. Thelma Ritter. Thank you, Shannon. She just brought it up. And Eli Wallach, for crying out loud. Eli Wallach. Oh, my word, that was him? Yes, and no way. Montgomery Clift is also in this film. It's it's a wonderful cast. But anyway, it, it, you know, it's just representative of this old generation, and 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 also you could take it now as this 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 story about masculinity and and you know how Marilyn Monroe kind of represents a certain degree of uh, femininity and and. How some of that is all just all that masculinity, this certain type of masculinity is kind of fallen by the wayside and stuff. And it's it's a really interesting dramatic story, dramatic performances, especially by Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable. I think they're both magnificent in it, and seeing the rest of the cast is really great. But uh, if you can, hunt down the misfits. I think it's an overlooked one, and it's worth checking out. My number 11 is To Kill a Mockingbird from 1962. It's available on Prime. So again, yay. That's two of my films now on Prime. You can go have a jolly good time. This is about Atticus Finch, a lawyer in the Depression era of the South. He defends a black man against an undeserved rape charge and his children against prejudice. That doesn't That's according sound to right. IMDb, isn't it? That just doesn't sound. You didn't right. make that up. <laughs> okay, let's let's talk about this film. This is a great film because you know the children are looking up to their father. Their father's a lawyer, defending you know this black person who has been wrongfully accused of rape. The, the rape, the apparent rape victim, is a white woman. So now there's this huge tension, extra tension racially happening, mm-hmm. and. The children, you know, I believe, if I remember correctly, the daughter sees the world very black and white. It, uh, you're either treating people well or you're not treating people mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. You're being fair to people or you're not. Right. Which is, is really great. And she just really looks up to her dad. And something that's fun about this movie is it's been parodied a lot. And recently I discovered a Simpsons episode that parodied it where Lisa and Homer are having a hard time connecting and they watch this film together and they have it straight up on their television. And it's really fun and and cute how it unfolds later. So it's a really great film. Awesome. That's that's great to see that on your list. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird, available on Prime. Excellent. My 11th favorite is The Planet of the Apes from 1968. Which I think still, in light of the more recent prequel trilogy, still holds up very well. You know, sure, it's not motion capture performances as the apes, 
but the uh, Oscar nominated makeup effects work just fine. They're serviceable. Uh, and really, this is a great example of how sci-fi is the vehicle to tell a story or to say something about our society. And Planet of the Apes was no no exception to that. In 1968, you know, this, this story about one race thinking that they're better than another race and imprisoning another race and harshly treating another race. Hey, we're going from, we're going race, whatever you said, race, and now you, race. Okay. We've got, we've got the themes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, this is the iconic film with Charlton Heston. If you haven't seen it, do so. Don't under estimate it don't underrate it by any means and try to avoid spoilers which are everywhere for this film's final few minutes uh it's it's a great film i think it's quite fascinating and it it still works very well that's the planet of the apes from 1968 i remember seeing that film for the first time and seeing the end and just being so pissed that the actual end shot is spoiled yeah by so many list makers. See, there you go. Before it was spoiler alert. Right. You yeah. Know, it was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. What's My your... number 10 is The Apartment from 1960. No shit. That made is, your is list. Is it yours? No. Oh. But I'm very keen on seeing that on your list. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, you'd actually think that this wouldn't be on my list. And let me tell you why. It was touch and go <laughs> whether or not you'd like this movie. I, we tried watching it a couple years ago mm. and I couldn't get into it. It just, you know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes mm. you just can't get into a film because of life. And so we tried watching it again for this list and i'm glad that we did it because i actually i love the actor the main actor in it jack lemon yeah i fucking love jack lemon he's great yeah and shirley mclean i fucking love too you know she's just fantastic so here's why it was touch and go (laughs) there's jack lemon he works at a firm i don't know what kind it actually is and all these higher up businessmen get to use his apartment, Jack Lemon's apartment, for nights with their girlfriends while their wives are at home mm. with the children they helped produce. So it's, you'd think I wouldn't be into that, but all the comedy that comes after it and all the karma that hits Jack Lemon before mm. he realizes what he's doing is not good for him nor other people is really awesome and it all ends perfectly in my opinion it's like okay we've learned our lesson we're gonna move in this direction Mm. Uh, i really like this film awesome i'm glad you do that's a great one my 10th favorite 60s film is who's afraid of virginia wolf from 1966 which i saw a long time ago, I think in my late teens, it stars Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton as this incredibly salty and and um, hurtful, bitter couple who invite Peter Seagal over for uh, a dinner. And the entire time is just this theater of bitterness <laughs> yeah. and anger and, and resentment and pain so much pain and you don't know 
why, where all this comes from originally until later in the movie, if I remember correctly. But the performances are remarkable. At the time when I first saw it, I actually thought Elizabeth Taylor was aged around that, uh, you know, middle age. When in fact, she was in her like late 30s, maybe, or something. And she is just a ball of fire. So, so awesome. And sometimes really funny, sometimes really nasty in this movie. Uh, And Richard Burton, he just does whatever he can do to parry and thrust back with her barbs. And, And he's great too. And I think there's some extra con- extra textual context with them having a relationship or having had a relationship too. That is probably interesting to research around that time, taking place around that time. But I don't know. I, I just have always been taken as a dramatic piece by this film. It's a kind of a comedy drama because the comedy comes from the audacious things that they say to each other. But it's also like dramatic because it comes from a very... Uh, hurt uh, a very uh, pained and and um, hurt place so uh, i recommend checking it out if you haven't who's afraid of virginia wolf from 1966 i think that was a great description love thank you my number nine is 101 dalmatians on disney plus from 1961 i actually quote this film quite often Whether I'm doing my dog's voice or my own voice, it's always, I'm hungry, mother. I really am. I really am. And that's by the puppy that's, you know, a little chubby, the one that actually almost... uh, Anyway, watch the film. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) For those who don't know, this is the film. Oh, and also, like, doesthedogdie.com. Why is Shanna telling us about this? Anyway, it's... Everything works out okay. It's fine. What's awesome about this film is there really is 101 Dalmatians eventually. And it must have been really fascinating and and difficult to get this all animated. It's got that scratchy line work Mm, um, feel to it. And it's, you know, kind of similar to Jungle Book. But I feel like 101 Dalmatians is scratchier. Mm -hmm. And I love this film. Because we get to see the, the, you know, all the puppies are with the mom and the dad. They they don't leave. Mm. And they're just, they all watch a dog show. And it's just, it's really cute. But anyway, the pl- <laughs> rambling on. The plot is Cruella de Vil, the evilest villain of all, wants to purchase the puppies while they're puppies and use their skins as a fashion statement. But it's okay because <laughs> everything works out. For Cruella, of course, right? For the dog lovers everywhere. <laughs> Your favorite movie about skinning dog puppies. Oh my god, why? <laughs> why would you do that? You know, Everything works out. That's that's an element of the movie that didn't really like land on me. Like it, it's, oh. it's not something that like I thought much about, put much thought about when I was it's a horrifying. kid. It's but when you do, yeah. it's like, oh my god. Yeah, oh she my wants god. to skin them. She right. says straight up. Right. Yeah. You know, she's not. She's not hiding her intentions. No, no, it's it's true. It's just, uh, yeah, for whatever reason, I didn't put much thought into her other than like, oh, yeah, she wants to kill the dogs, you know. Not just dogs. She wants to kill puppies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. That, I'm interested. that's interesting. Uh-huh. It's on like your list. 99 of them. My ninth favorite 60s movie is a Western, and it's not my favorite Western of the decade, 
but it's one of them. It is Sam Peckinpah's 1969 film, The Wild Bunch, which is another film that kind of wrestles with this kind of age of transition of the old West and, and kind of a modern period. I think, if I remember correctly, it takes place during... <clears throat> during the Spanish-American War or, or some sort of a wartime. And the ad, I remember there being a Gatling gun in it and that being kind of a big deal. But, you know, the characters, which is an extraordinary cast that includes, like, William Holden and Ernest Borgnine, this is kind of what they're dealing with is this the, the, being a theme of the past. And there's some extra textual, like, metaphorical stuff there that you could you could interpret from the story but it was audacious it was violent at the time it had nudity too and and so many other things but it also has one of the best opening title sequences i think with them coming into town and you have the this area where these kids are torturing the scorpion with these ants and stuff and it's it's so it's there's something unsavory and unpleasant but also like there's so much that's said in that imagery and it's unforgettable imagery anyway it's just a really fascinating and cool movie i always liked in terms of westerns it's one of the more interesting westerns i've ever seen that's the wild bunch by sam peckham paul and that's a fun name to say peckham paul 1969 all right <sighs> My number eight is It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World oh. from 1963. This is not available to stream, but totally worth renting. It's not available to stream anymore? I don't. I looked it up. It wasn't available. Oh, man, because we saw it on Amazon Prime, I think. Uh, and so it must have just come off. Do you think I maybe researched it wrong? It's possible. I'll look when you're Okay, when you you're double do- check. Yeah. So this is a great film. It's got so many comedians of the time in it. But, like, of course, my favorite is Spencer Tracy is in it. So he made it to my, my 60s list. And it's just bizarre. The film is about a bunch of people that come across... And a man in an accident he freaking drives off a cliff, guys. <laughs> and these people stop to go and check if he's okay or completely dead. And he kind of tells them that he has stolen loot in a particular place. And now they all get back to their ca- after he dies. They all get back to his car, back to their cars. Correction: After but he kicks the bucket. After he kicks the bucket, <laughs> and they're like. They're contemplating whether or not they should go look for this loot. And yeah. eventually they do. This is all within the first 20 minutes. And Zaniness it's this race. Occurs. This race against each other. And just awful things. <laughs> awfully funny things happen. I'm a big fan of Rat Race. And so this film is probably where Rat Race got its concept from. Borrowed its concept from. Mm-hmm. So I also found out that my father's parents when growing up this was a film that they owned and my father's parents were also the only people in the neighborhood that had a projector at the time and so they would have movie nights at the paxton's and apparently this film played like once a month at their house wow so uh when i was telling my parents about it they were like oh we know that film and to find that out was very interesting to me 
so two things. One, you're right. It is not available on Prime. Okay, good. I think it was, but now it's not. And also at the time, it's kind of like the it was meant to be the epic comedy, and and yeah. it was trying to uh, be competition for TV, get people out of the away from the TV uh, to go to the movie theater again. That's why there's yeah. all these epics in the '60s, and this was the epic comedy. And so you got both TV and film stars all in this movie, like Spencer Tracy, Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, and Mickey Rooney, all these legends of both the silver screen and the TV screen coming into one massive thing. So you, you wouldn't see this on TV. Come out and check this out. You know? <laughs> that was how they, and it was like three hours it. long. And, okay. Yeah. I, I also say like in between all the comedy, there's moments of sanity and there's moments of, there's like this quiet moment between two characters and they have this little conversation about what they would do with the loot if mm-hmm. they could find it. Yeah. And it's so sweet and so grounding to the rest of the film. Sure. It's nice that they take you out of the hysteria because at that point the film is hysterical. Of course. Uh, like not funny, but like kind of concerning. And so it's nice that they go aside for a quiet moment and just kind of root it down. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. My, uh, mind the copter that's flying over us, I'm sorry. Uh, but my eighth favorite 60s movie is my first one on my list that's available on a subscription service to find. It's 1967's The Graduate, available on Amazon Prime. Another fascinating film that's a, a, making a statement about a generation, and, but also, I think, a star-making performance by Dustin Hoffman in this film. It's about a guy who's going, he's kind of in this transition phase of going off to college, uh, what he wants to do with his life, and he gets seduced by his, his one of his parents' friends, Mrs. Robinson. It had a wonderful soundtrack by Simon and Garfunkel, very famous song, Mrs. Robinson, which I heard ad nauseum growing up. Oh, me too. It was in a lot of movies. No, it was just in my father's head all the whole time. Oh. <laughs> it was in my vicinity in any form all the time. But it's also a really good mix of comedy and drama. And it may be my favorite film by Mike Nichols, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mentioned earlier is also by Mike Nichols. That was his first film. This is his second film. I'm not sure that he made anything nearly on the level of those two films uh, since until his passing. But uh, yeah, this is a great film. The Graduate from 1967 on Amazon Prime, my eighth favorite 60s movie. My number seven is Sound of Music from 65. It is available on the Disney Channel, which, uh, I mean, Disney Plus, of course. Really? Weird. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it would be available anywhere, but that's where it is. Maybe it's a Julie Andrews thing. Oh, it's <laughs> probably sure. a Fox thing. Yeah, but. maybe. So, you know, we all know what this is about. It's about the, the nun that goes to take care of a, I forgot his title, but... I don't, oh, I don't know what his title is, but I just know it's the Von Trapp family. Yeah, he's go, she's going to go and help look after seven children, mm-hmm. I believe. 
It is seven, right? Uh, sure, I'll yeah. go with that. Five to seven children. It doesn't matter after three anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> she's going to go look after them. And essentially, she brings love and song back into the household that that is recovering from the loss of the mother. Mm. And I don't know when the loss of the mother happened, if it was four years, one year. I don't know. But she brings the family together. She brings the father back to his children. And they also have to escape Nazi Germany. Right. Well, it's, it's not Nazi that little... Germany. It's they're in, uh, they're in Austria. Yes, Austria. But so Nazi-occupied yes. Austria. Yeah, that little nugget. They have to escape. Yes, and it's a musical, of course, and wonderful songs like Do, Re, Mi and... I the mean, sound of music and the songbook is ubiquitous. You yes. know, I mean, this is a great it. film to show children. Sure, I think if they have the attention span, yes. Yeah, because it's I... long. It's not a it slim film. Long. But you know what? Growing up, like watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, I'd only come into the room every now and again, and especially when there was a song and the sound of music. That's fine too. I would say Sayona music is a few steps above Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. So of course would, it is. I'm just I would saying. show that before, but yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Just saying the watch, we can skip it entirely. <laughs> uh, my seventh favorite '60s movie is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969. I can't believe it's from '69. It is apparently my favorite western of the '60s. A great wonderful blend of of comedy western drama paul newman and robert redford are just iconic in this movie i don't know it's just there's a there's some sense of whimsy to it but there's there's this great rapport between the two of them it's an interesting chase movie in a way because they are trying to run off to mexico uh to try to they're, they're wanted by the law, and so they're trying not to get themselves killed or arrested by the military. And so they're they're on their way to Mexico, and, you know, there's just so... It's a I, lot of escaping happening in the 60s. Is it? Really? <laughs> oh, well, you know... Sound escaping either from societal acceptances and whether they're right or wrong and uh, actual very, crime issues. Very deep, love. Very deep. Anyway, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is just an iconic film with so many iconic scenes and just one of those movies. And uh, I love it. And if you can find it, you need to check it out. I think you will be pleasantly surprised by it. Shanna, we are now halfway through the list. Yeah. What is your number six? My number six is one of my favorite Disney animated films that I feel doesn't get enough uh, praise and celebration. It's Sword in the Stone, mm. available on Disney+. Plus. It's from 63. It has quite a few actors, but one that I want to talk about is Martha Wentworth, who is also the, the nanny voice in 101 Dalmatians. Oh, okay. And Who does I, she play? She plays Madame Mim, so oh. one of the bad guys. Yeah, in the film. bad guy. Well, there's a couple bad guys, you know. Yeah. Uh, she's like Merlin's foe. Yes. Uh, this is, you know, this is all about, this is all about Ken Arthur. That before Ken Arthur is Ken Arthur, he pulls out the sword. He's just a little page boy. He's so scrawny. Merlin finds him and starts helping him see the world differently, really expanding his mind. I mean, Merlin is winning at homeschooling here, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. If you need 
a tip or two and go watch Sword in the Stone. I think it's really whimsical. They go on this journey to learn about sinking and floating by becoming a fish. They learn about flight, height, gravity by becoming a squirrel. It's just a really lovely story. And I just love it. Awesome. My sixth favorite film of the 60s <laughs> is my second film that's available to stream on, on a subscription service. It's available on Amazon Prime and Hulu right now. It's from 1964. It is Goldfinger. Oh, good for you. It is, of course, <laughs> arguably the best James Bond film ever made. I think it's certainly the most fun of the 60s James Bond movies. It's certainly one of the least ridiculous ones, too. I think it's kind of like this perfect mix where, you know, the James Bond movies from Dr. No and from Russia with Love kind of worked their way up to the the efficiency and the thrills uh, that was Goldfinger. And then, like, after that, it kind of went down and down to, like, the ridiculousness of Diamonds Are Forever, even, and everything that came after I don't think, like, the franchise was as good as Goldfinger for at least uh, 20 to 30 years after this. I really don't. So eat it. Come at me. I don't care. Uh, no, I mean, Are like... you talking to me? No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> you don't care. You're not a fan. No, I'm not. But it, it's the, also the movie that, that best represents everything that we know James Bond to be, you know? All the catchphrases, all the gadgets, the cars, the women... Everything is encapsulated first, really, in Goldfinger. And uh, I love it. I think it's awesome. And if you're looking for a throwback, you know, action movie, um, it's a different pace from, you know, what you're used to now still. But it's, 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 it doesn't get much better than this film. So that's available on Amazon Prime and Hulu. All right, my number five is The Manchurian Candidate from 62. It's available on HBO, so go watch it now. Wow. Yeah, I freaking love this film. No kidding. So this is about a former prisoner of war that is brainwashed and becomes an assassin for an internet, an international communist conspiracy. You know, they have... They have conferences. They come and they get together and they exchange <laughs> ideas what, what, and new products. <laughs> what are they? What are they? Uh, prisoners of what war? Uh, it's is it the Vietnam? No, war? Korean. Oh shoot! But I'm it, very sorry. It was. I think it was very much a uh, allegory. But it came out during the Vietnam War. What right? year was it? Sixty-two. Yeah. At uh, the beginning of that. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay, so that's why I'm getting confused. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Sorry about that. It's all good. No, it's it, fascinating. You know, it's got Frank Sinatra in it. It's got uh, Janet Lee, Angela Lansbury, who's a bad guy. <laughs> oh my god! It's yep. so frightening. She's kind <laughs> of a like, bitch. Yeah. Wait, what? And she's like the worst kind of bitch you could get. Mm. And it's just like it's so jarring. Anyway, uh, when I saw. The brainwashing occur. Yeah. You know, you learn about the concept of brainwashing and then you're like, oh, well, that's nice. And then you move on because like, how do you conceptualize it? Well, mm. these people, the this crew conceptualizes it. John and Frankenheimer, I think, yeah, is the director. Yeah, I believe so. There you go. That's right. And it's just amazing visually. And it makes me so excited. And I've seen 
parodies of it before and of course if you see parodies of what i'm talking about it's not going to make a lick of sense but then you see it in here and you're like holy cow that's freaking smart and different they show different angles of it happening through the eyes of different people yeah and it's it's just such a fascinating way to show brainwashing but also what it's like for different different ethnicities different ages different backgrounds what their objective view of the world, their subjective view of the world is like. So it's just super fucking fascinating. Two quick notes about that, too. One, it's one of the earliest movies that's kind of brutal in its violence and sudden in its violence, uh, which is fascinating. And also, I believe that's the first film that we saw where the credits was at the end of the movie, not at the beginning of the movie, oh, right? Oh, that's right. That's what we were trying to figure out yeah. where that was. I, I think, think that's that, the earliest film right. that we've seen that that's the case, uh, which is kind of interesting, you know, because in the old golden age, all the entire complete credits of a film was in the front of a movie before the story really got started. And then the movie would end with a, the end or the company logo or something. And this mm-hmm. was the earliest movie that that wasn't the case. So awesome. I'm, I'm, that's thrilling to have that on your list. Yeah, Fantastic. I'm actually, I, I want to go watch it again now. <laughs> it's like, it's that kind of movie that excites me. On the opposite end of the spectrum is my fifth favorite movie of the 60s. It is The Jungle Book from 1967. Yay! Available on Disney+. Plus. By far my favorite animated Disney film of the 60s. I think it's the last Walt Disney film before he died, if I remember correctly. Mm. And I've always, I grew up with this movie. I always loved it. I love the characters. Every character is so distinct and memorable. This is probably my favorite version of this story. Although I still haven't seen the 1994 live action Disney movie. I, I still need to hunt that down and check that out. But this is definitely my favorite, the best voice cast you have louis prima and you have phil harris in it and oh gosh the guy whose name i always forget who is in all about eve he voiced sheer khan is magnificently that is a really good voice yeah he that's as a good a voice, voice as darth vader oh it's it's you actually know, it's like iconic as iconic it's so velvety and just so deliciously how does evil, he do that right? <laughs> it's wonderful and great music too i love the songbook from the jungle book as well one of my favorites 1967 film available on disney plus so my number four is Mary Poppins. Mary ah. Poppins from it's on Disney Plus. It's from I've written here 1994, but obviously it's 1964. Right. Um, <laughs> Whoops. Very far. Now, how interesting is this? It's Julie Andrews again, and she's a nanny. She's looking after children again. This is before right. Sound of Music, uh, and she's singing again (laughs) you know the only difference is this is happening in london and she's she's just trying to keep her sanity and there's penguins (laughs) yes this is how you keep your sanity penguins (laughs) nannies use penguins anyway so you know this is happening in london she's magical she is a magical nanny that ever magicked you know, she uses music and adventure to teach lessons. She's also rocking the homeschooling thing. Apparently, mm-hmm. Disney people rock the homeschooling <laughs> thing. <laughs> she's, she's trying to help two children that are neglected by their parents 
you know, they're cared for, they have a home, they have the clothes, they have mm-hmm. the food, but the parents just are trying to make a great life for them. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the balance gets out of whack. And so they feel neglected. They want their parents. They want time with their parents. And, you know, it's of that age where they need that. Yeah. And uh, so she tries to not only bring the children's need for attention and a release of energy into a healthy way but she also tries to heal the relationship between them and the father yeah and also a period piece because i think it's set during the suffrage movement of the, the english suffrage movement and around yes. the turn of the century and too. you know you spoke about the songbook for jungle book but this songbook is really freaking fantastic too it is absolutely my fourth favorite 60s movie is a movie for which I'm wearing a shirt right now, which uh, hopefully we can so get a, sexy. a picture of for <laughs> Instagram. You'll see on there. It is 1960s Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. Well, it's, it's, on, it's on my list, so it's clearly my favorite Hitchcock film from the 60s. I would actually venture to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and say this is Hitchcock's last great film. And I think that everything else that came after, not all of which I have seen, but reputedly too, never measured up to Psycho and what came before Psycho in his career. I feel like there's a before Psycho and after Psycho in terms of his career. I think he was only alive for another 20 years uh, anyway. I think he made maybe only six other movies after this, if I remember correctly. But Psycho is is uh, magnificent. It's the granddaddy of slasher films, of course. Uh, it, it should be noted, as a uh, as a matter of fact, if you haven't seen the film, it's about Marianne Crane. She is plotting to steal money from her boss or a client of her boss, a hefty sum of money, to rendezvous to a town in Arizona with her lover. Her married lover. Right. Yes. And and do what they will with a large sum of money uh, in Arizona. <laughs> and she makes a stop off because of a very stormy night. She makes a stop off at the Bates Motel just five miles away from her destination. And it's basically about everything that happens from there. It introduced an, introduced an iconic character, Norman Bates. If you've seen, you may have heard of a little show called Bates Motel, which is supposed oh, to be... Oh, I was still going to check that out during my sewing. Ah, it's supposed to be kind of a prequel to hmm. this. If you're keen on that sort of thing, you, you can probably easily find that. But uh, I think Anthony Perkins in this film is is stellar, and so is everybody else. It's It's just everything. It's one of the greatest films ever made. Psycho, 1960, fourth favorite 60s movie of mine. Okay, let me tell you about my third favorite because I fucking love this film. And when you watched it without me, for like a, it would have been my second time. I was so mad. Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> uh, guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, is it's gotta be like one of it would probably hit my one of my all time favorite mm. films. It's from 1967. It has. Two of my favorites. Yeah. Spencer Tracy. Uh, also, Catherine Hepburn. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. I love her. And then Sydney Poitier. You know, this trio of Spencer, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, and Sydney Poitier is just, it's just magnificent. And quite frankly, everyone that's in this film is awesome. I'm not going to go on about them. But 
for those who don't know, this is a film about a couple that just got engaged, a white woman and an African-American man, and she brings him home to meet the parents, and it's not what they were expecting, and his parents comes to them, <laughs> and she's not what they were expecting, and it's just this insane, crazy eight-hour period that they have, to, about eight-hour period that they have together, and it, it's just, it's just, it's so beautiful. I mean, I laugh until I cry in this <laughs> film. It's just, and then the end is just fantastic, and there's this beautiful moment where, you know, you can't really read where they, where her parents are on the situation, you think they're okay, but maybe they're not. And then they do little things that kind of tip the scale. But uh, there's a fantastic scene in there where Catherine Hepburn tells someone to just go. And it's just <laughs> fantastic and yeah. empowering. And Catherine Hepburn's presence in that specific scene is just so powerful. She's like a real Wonder Woman, you know, in that way. And Spencer Tracy, he's like, I'm just a dad that's worried, you know, <laughs> and it's coming out bad. And, you know, Sidney Poitier is just, just amazing. He's just so gentle and loving and just so wonderful. I, I like I could just gush about this film all the time, but you know, we can move on. It's just it's great. Go check it out. It is available on Netflix. And what was that again? It's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Not the not not the the new thing, the new spin-off thing. This is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from sixty seven. Very cool. My third favorite sixties movie is one that was on your list from nineteen sixty four on Disney Plus. It is Mary Poppins. Not much more I can add to what you said before. Of course, the songbook is magical. It's one of those movies where it's hard not to smile after watching the film, mm. uh, even while watching the film. There's so much that happens in it that's just uh, delightful, just endlessly delightful and magical. And, you know, there is there is some beautiful moving stuff that happens in it. And... And also some surprising character stuff that I won't spoil that is kind of revealed at the end of it, too. And, yeah, I think you said pretty much everything that needs to be said about it. So that's Mary Poppins, 1964 on Disney+. My number two of the 60s is 2001 A Space Odyssey. Really? That's your second favorite 60s movie? I mean, okay, so we actually watched this. It's from 1968. We watched this while I was sewing because I thought that would be a good idea. There's not much dialogue that happens. And when it does happen, I was just going to like slow down the sewing and, you know, we'd enjoy it. And every time I looked up at that film, like I would look down and then I'd look up and I'd be like, oh, my God, that's an amazing shot. Every freaking time. Every freaking time. And so what is this about? <laughs> that's actually a question that a lot of people wrestle with after watching the film Lo. you know it is and it's it's great right because your interpretation of it I think changes you know with your human experience as you get older as mm. you have more experiences and so I looked on IMDB for a description I tried thinking of my own description 
it's just too difficult to explain this film. Jeff says there's three acts, and that's probably as much as you can give. They're connected, certainly. There's something mysterious that's happening, and this mystery is taking place in space, in kind of this world that's been imagined. You know, what is space going to be like? Is it going to be a sort of an airport type situation oh. for people. So in the future. In, in the future, the future. By the way. So you can definitely tell, you know, something more recent like Ad Astra, you can tell was influenced yeah. too by this point. work. Yeah. And 2001 Space Odyssey does, be- does it better. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on in this film. Yeah. And like you said, the ending is very odd. It, it, it'll stop you from talking and just kind of think internally about it so why should you go see it you should why should you go and see it you should rent it because it's a beautiful piece of work and if you like space you should see it and if you like interesting concepts that are you know not just told in a straight up way Mm -hmm. uh, this is the film for you because especially if you like interpreting things and and mulling things over this is a good film Awesome. And it's Stanley Kubrick's film. Right, right. That's fantastic. My second favorite 60s film is a Mel Brooks film, his first film from 1968, The Producers. I forgot to add that to my list. I'm so Very glad cool. you have it. I love that freaking film. I should step back and say, guess who's coming to dinner? I almost added on my list, but I knew it would be on oh. yours. So Okay, so there we I go. I put in The Misfits instead. But The Producers is most likely my favorite Mel Brooks movie ever. Spaceballs might be second to it, and then Young Frankenstein. But the producers I just love. It's hilarious. Uh, uh, Zero Mostel is kind of the main character. He's kind of a slime ball. He's like seducing old ladies to get their money, essentially. And it's just it's set up in the first five minutes that and he's it's such a douchebag but then gene wilder comes in as this neurotic accountant and one thing leads to another and they come up with this concept of how to create a flop uh in the theater in broadway that would actually result in them being rich beyond their imaginations and it's this just hilarious I don't want to say slapstick, but this absolutely absurdist uh, concept. And they do it by creating a, a play that is basically an, a love letter to Adolf Hitler. And it, 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 it uh, results in one of the most hilarious about that. <laughs> climaxes ever on film. I just love the producers. It's brilliant and hilarious. And if you haven't seen it, you really need to hunt it down. It's my second favorite 60s movie. All right, Shanna. (laughs) So now you got me kind of curious. What is your favorite movie from the 60s? It's Psycho. Oh, no shit. Really? Yeah, it's my favorite Hitchcock film. Wow. Well, actually, 
Is Rear Window his? Yeah. Oh, that's probably my favorite. This is like my second favorite. Very good. And I just, you said everything there is to say about it, but I love it because it has a high sentimental value to me. That's the first film that you and I watched. It was Mm. the first time I got to watch it. And I was like, well, if he has Psycho, he must really be into films, you know? So um, it it has high sentimental value to me. But, you know, we rewatched this also a great movie to watch if you've watched it before and now you're sewing for the rest of your life. This is a great (laughs) movie to watch because it's, it's just... There's a couple things that happen in it where you're like, no way, you know? Yeah. And it's just really unique, and the black and white is gorgeous. I just want to swim in it, and, you know, it's it's very dramatic, but it's not overly done. And I, I just, I love the characters, even the bad guys, you know, and I feel sorry for everyone that doesn't make it to the end, and it's <laughs> it's great. Awesome. Wow, what about that's, yours? That's pretty baller. My favorite movie on this of the sixties I landed on was two thousand one A Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, I knew it would be there somewhere. Nineteen sixty eight, as you said, what's interesting that you reminded me about it is it came out a year before we landed on the moon. And yeah, so they knew nothing. And I mean, there was a certain a degree of you know experiments to get out of the atmosphere and all this other stuff. You know, the Apollo missions and the Mercury missions before that. There's it happened. It came out during the space race, but what's fascinating is there is a huge section of this movie that partially takes place on the moon, and large amounts of this movie is space travel and stuff and what it could be in the future. And so you have this interesting mix of forward-thinking sense of wonder of what the future could look like and what we what we could achieve as a species in space but also like the movie is is about our progress as a race too right Mm. and it it literally from the beginning yeah it literally starts with nothingness and then there's this this dawn of the universe and then dawn of man and then all this other stuff and so it's 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 brilliant film. It is a kind of a WTF film in terms of the the but journey the good you kind, go on. The good kind. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so uh, I love it for everything that it is. And it, you're right; it is an absolutely gorgeous film as well. And I could probably talk for at least an hour about 2001 Space Odyssey. And- I will say it's it's rather disappointing that they thought that we would get that far by 2001. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And we're still not there. It's like, sorry, guys, this, this one's a tough nut to crack. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, maybe when it, we're, if we're still around for the 60th anniversary, we can do a uh, anniversary review of that film oh, too. Oh, that'd be great. We could and break it really, up some more. Yeah, really dig into it. But anyway, yeah, it's my favorite movie of the 60s 2001 a space odyssey from 68 but what are your favorite movies of the 60s we're dying to know email us at the gibson review at gmail.com but yes we do want to know what you like about the 60s tell us and shanna why don't you tell them where they can find you online you can tell me about your 60s favorites at shanna underscore paxton underscore photography on Instagram. <laughs> to be clear, on Instagram. Yeah. And they can probably find your full list of 60s movies you've seen on Flickchart if they look for... Spellbinding A. Very cool. 
uh, go to the website, thegibsonreview.com, and uh, you'll find all the past episodes of The Movie Lovers. You can stream directly there. You'll find other features there, like the best of the 2010s, uh, and other articles and reviews are there. You can also go to the follow us on social media. There's the Facebook slash The Gibson Review, and most actively, Instagram, The Gibson 99, and on Flickchart, The Gibson 99 as well. If you have found us on a podcatcher somehow and you're not streaming directly through the website, such as Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, I know there's another one out there, Spotify, that's what it is, please give us a review, follow us, whatever it is that's going to help other movie lovers find us. We really appreciate it. Share us on your social media. We appreciate the support. The next episode of The Movie Lovers, we're kind of filling time here because the... um, this whole quarantine thing has really screwed up the movie schedule here. <laughs> uh, we might have, we were supposed to have a summer movie preview bonus episode coming up in the next couple of weeks, and uh, we might not I even think, have that. I think that's not going to yeah. happen, my I don't love. Know. I hate to be the one to tell you. I know. I, yeah. Anyway, uh, we're going to review finally Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which came out on Hulu a couple weeks back. I think it'll be a full month by the time that episode comes out. That episode you can look for on Tuesday, May 12th. Uh, so we'll review that film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And we think for film phase, we'll talk about our favorite movies with secrets. And, and we're kind of trying to stay away from secrets that are secrets spoilers. Secrets and lies. Which is an actual movie. But thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we're trying to stay away from movies that where the secrets are... Spoilers. spoilery. Right. Yeah. So if you have any ideas about that, then feel free to shoot us messages on those. But uh, until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye. Stay safe.